Do it all in that voice. That'll help. <laughs> Can I we have? <laughs> On our side today, we have some random recommendations <laughs> for you. It's, good, including... it's like Marsha from Spaced is in the room. <laughs> Now do it in that voice while sat on Andrew's knee and he just moves his mouth a little bit. <laughs> Shall we do a podcast? Yes. 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 But what if there is no tomorrow? There wasn't one today. Fascinating. Get away from her, you bitch. I'm Batman. Oh, do not. There is no Welcome to the Nerdfest podcast. Today we've got Dan Watkins, Andy Chandler, Peter Johnson, John Farthing, and I'm Hazel Burton. We have a recommendations special episode for you today, so we're going to be bringing you lots of new reviews of things that we've been enjoying recently, including a full review of Bill and Ted Face the Music. So let's start the show. How is everybody? So I'm good. We're, we're back in some kind of weird semi-lockdown here. Mm-hmm. So I went to the pub to watch a football game on my own and was the only person in an entire pub and had to fill in a form and get a five-minute talk. But then they brought beer to my table, so it was, you know, swings and roundabouts. What was your five-minute talk about? Well, about having to fill in a form correctly, mm-hmm. how to use the app, the one-way system around the pub, whether I was... With other people who were in my household, despite the fact I was clearly there on my own. I was quite tempted to say the poltergeist that was with me was actually the (laughs) neighbours. So am I right in thinking that if you sit too close to someone accidentally at the pub, you then have to take them home and live with them? That's how it works, yeah. you're, You're then in a bubble with them, yes. Is that how Louise met you? The actual pandemic ended several months ago, but I've, I just haven't told her because I don't want her to leave me. <laughs> <laughs> it's like those Japanese guys in the 70s. Was that true or was that an urban myth about like they found some Japanese guys in the 70s in the jungle who thought the war was still going on like a ridiculous number of years later? I think it's true. Yeah. Isn't that what um, like 10 Cloverfield Lane was sort of based on in that um, he kept a couple of people in his basement uh, under the pretense of an alien invasion that didn't happen, but it did. No, it actually, now I'm yeah. confused. <laughs> I think it was written that it didn't happen, but then they decided to brand it as Cloverfield and therefore yeah. stuck on some special effects at the end. Oh, which yeah. Which ruined the film. Yeah. <laughs> it was really good up to that point. It mm. was. It was really it is a good. good film. John Goodman's great in it. Yeah, John Goodman's got the right amount of, oh, he seems nice, but is a complete psychopath. <laughs> mm-hmm. Like all the best serial killers. Yeah. So uh, did uh, we see the news this week that um, Tom Hardy is a heavily rumoured new James Bond? Boring. <laughs> <laughs> Not the news, but the idea of like Tom Hardy. I, yeah, it's just it's too similar to Daniel Craig. He's too old. It's the most safest dual choice I could possibly think of. Wasn't he rumoured, like, even back before Craig? Certainly he's been rumoured before to take over from him. Mm. Mm. There's a weird thing of people being rumoured before who then become Bond, because Pierce Brosnan was rumoured to be Bond before Timothy Dalton, Mm -hmm. but couldn't do it because he was in Remington Steel. And Roger Moore was in the frame for Bond, Mm -hmm. but was tied to his TV show. Yeah, there's definitely form for that. So who's currently tied to a TV show? 
because there'll be the Bond after the next one. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I was going to say Sue Barker, but she's free now, isn't she? Yeah. <laughs> I was going to say Idris Elba just to annoy Louise. <laughs> <laughs> but he has been heavily rumoured to take on the role. And he t- has said that he would actually quite like to. No, Louise would like Idris Elba to just go live in a cave and never show his face again. <laughs> Do we know why? What, what is the basis of her know. antipathy? I think she just thinks he's a smug little shit, which I guess... <laughs> I, I, I think um, she got annoyed with Luther getting increasingly ridiculous. But surely that's the writer's fault. Yeah, but she, in her head, I, I think she thinks Luther is Idris Elba and <laughs> therefore is increasingly ridiculous. But that's a sign of a great actor to get you to believe them, their character. Yeah, Louise. And all that DJing <laughs> stuff, all that bloody DJ nonsense, playing a pre-mixed CD whilst jiggling around behind some decks with a pair of headphones on like his DJ... What? Jazzy Jeff or whatever. Uh, I knew you were going to say Jazzy <laughs> Jeff. <laughs> it's the only DJ he knows. The only DJ I know. <laughs> <laughs> I saw Jazzy Jeff live a couple of months ago. So have you have you heard the Bill Air news? The remake? Oh yeah, they're going to reboot it with Tom Hardy in the lead, aren't they? <laughs> <laughs> is this about Uncle Phil's house becoming an Airbnb? Because I did see that earlier this week. No, this is genuine news. So Bill Airbnb. <laughs> the Peacock thing, this the streaming thing in America, has picked up for two seasons. Bill Air, a gritty retelling of the Fresh Prince of Bel Air. Mm-hmm as a serious drama exploring what it really would be like for a black person Were in you reading the... a parody site? Well, it kind of started off as a <laughs> semi-parody. Yeah, it did. And then people saw it and really liked it. Some guy made a trailer on YouTube that Will Smith saw, who is on board as an executive producer, and now it's a, it's a real series. So what we're saying is Alfonso Ribeiro is the new James Bond. <laughs> yes. <gasps> Sold. <laughs> please, please note for the record, Peter just did the Carlton dance. <laughs> oh, I tried to. I couldn't really remember how it went. So who would your Bonds be if you could pick a Bond? Because I, I think, are we fairly negative about Tom Hardy or what do we think? I like the guy. I love Tom Hardy as an actor. I think he's phenomenal, but uh, I just he, he does seem to be in the same mould as Daniel Craig, a big beefy Bond, mm-hmm. and yeah. I'm done with that. Because I think if they're going to keep James Bond a similar character to how he's been for the last, you know, sixty years, then I think Tom Hardy's probably too good for the role. Um, unless they're going to do something dramatically different with it, in which case, you know, I would really like to see a really outside choice of casting. I'm not that interested if it's going to be someone like him. By too good, do you mean actually being a good actor? Yeah, I do think mm-hmm. Tom Hardy's a very, very good actor, but I think it would be beneath him to take on the role of James Bond as it is at the moment. If he was going to do something very different with it, then might have a different opinion. But I think you need to go quite outside of the box um, at the moment to, to make it into something um, better. Away from the A-list. Maybe not away from the A-list. I would genuinely love to see a woman in the role. But then why do that with James Bond? Unless you go for the codename idea. Yeah, are we not believing that Lashana Lynch might be the new 007 in No Time to Die? Yeah. So not necessarily Mm. James Bond, but the the equivalent agent. Yeah, you could do that. I just don't think it makes sense to have James Bond being a woman. It wouldn't allow a black man to do it, and people complained when a blonde guy got uh, the role and you can you can make the argument um with any any little difference 
I mean, Bond wasn't Scottish until Sean Connery got the role. Yeah. So I think, was it the last movie or the movie before that it was established that James Bond was his actual name? In Skyfall, yeah. I think, yeah. But yeah. Um, I don't know. I just, I don't, I haven't found yet a reasonable argument as to why it can't be a woman. Um, and I do think someone like Gwendolyn Christie would be great. But I also like I also like your argument that um, why can't we have a series that she leads that isn't James Bond as well? Exactly, mm-hmm. she shouldn't be in the shadow of a male archetype. Yeah, make one about a fantastic women spy. I think you could make a film set in the 007 universe sure. with a female lead. Mm-hmm. There were talks about doing that for Halle Berry yeah. and Jenks's character, but I think that was just marketing spin. Mm-hmm. Because Bond has never done that before, am I right? It's only ever been the main films. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. So maybe they'll get into the cinematic universe idea. Maybe a Blofeld movie would be the way to do it with Christoph Waltz. Mm. But he, yeah. Mm. The, he like Joker really equivalent. Mm-hmm. Would, would he waltz down the steps? <laughs> oh. <laughs> <laughs> Nicely done. Thank you. He dance down the steps to the gym will fix it tune to keep the uh, routine of <laughs> dancing to inappropriate. <laughs> There was not a single person in Britain who did not wince. <laughs> mm, yeah. <laughs> I'm just tired of James Bond. I'm not interested in seeing No Time to Die. Um, and I'm just, I, I, I would prefer they just didn't make any more. And then they put time and effort and money into new franchises. And then these could be led by uh, a, a woman or someone who is not a white heterosexual man. Uh, but it makes money and it's a big name and it will continue. And if it's going to do that, then I would love to see something different. Have uh, Riz Ahmed, um, who's a mm. British actor and rapper. Um, he's of Pakistani uh, descent. He looks quite sharp. He looks good in a suit. I think he'd um, carry it off. First time I saw him was in Four Lions, um, which was a Chris yep. Morris black comedy from 2010, uh, where he plays a domestic terrorist from Sheffield. Mm. Um, which is kind of the opposite of James Bond, but he's he's a really good actor, um, mm. and he'd just bring a new dynamic to it. Not just because of the colour of his skin or his, his descent, yeah. but um, because he's—I mean—he's a smaller guy as well, so he wouldn't be a big beefy yeah. punching machine. Um, he would be, put a different spin on the action, I'm sure. But you could take the stories away from this kind of post-colonial Britain still exerting its influence covertly throughout the world thing, and he could challenge Britain's colonial history or something just make it different because we've had about 9,000 James Bond films where he goes to the place and he gets the speedboat and he has sex with the woman then he shoots the robot and I'm I don't need another one of those I'm thinking from a representation point of view you know um if young girls are kind of growing up like when I was younger um I I was into you know Disney and princesses and stuff like that but um, I used to um, sneak around corners with a gun and it wasn't actually James Bond. It was uh, it was Ethan Hunt, actually, from Mission Possible. But do, 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 do. You know, and I just think, well, it doesn't matter that James Bond has always been a man. Um, it, it shows that anyone can be James Bond, man, woman, whoever. It's not like the James Bond franchise owns the whole idea of being a spy, though. You could argue things like Killing Eve are different angles and aspects of the similar things. Yeah. The Bond movies, as they are, have been phenomenally successful as a series, ridiculously so. Yeah. So I can kind of understand why the producers would be reticent to change things too much that would devalue the character. What I'd probably like to see most, and this is speaking not as a huge Bond fan, is for them to have a bit of a change of tone again, because in the wake of the Bourne films, 
they went super serious and gritty. And as the Daniel Craig films have gone on, the stunts and the action seem to have gone bigger and bigger and bigger. Meanwhile, you've got the Mission Impossible films doing something similar and arguably doing it better. So I would rather see future Bond films try and do something a bit different and maybe try being the light-hearted alternative to such Ooh, things. Then you're back to Roger Moore territory. Yeah, I'd like to see that. Hey, Dan, what do you think to Davy Diggs? Uh, yes to anything. That is a very good idea. <laughs> Happily would see it. We know he can do serious as well. Um, who knows how long the Snowpiercer TV series will last, yeah. but if he needs something after that, excellent. <laughs> uh, my thought would actually be something that I think I initially heard on the Empire podcast a couple of years ago when Crazy Rich Asians came out, which is Henry Golding. Mm. He's got the charisma. He's got the charm. He looks great in a suit or a tuxedo. Granted, he did subsequently make Last Christmas, which I've not heard very good things about. But if you want that swaggering, dapper James Bond with a bit more fun and a lighter touch, he would be my absolute top pick. I think I would pick Dan Stevens, who was the lead in Legion. Mm. So he's very good in most things I've seen him in. Boring. <laughs> <laughs> he's he's same as Tom Hardy. He's got blonde hair. But a little bit posher. You can understand what he's saying, unlike Tom Hardy, yeah. in most of his mm-hmm. films. I think I'm probably just taking a don't-give-a-fuck approach, because I don't give a fuck. <laughs> I don't care. <laughs> Are any of us going to see No Time to Die? Yeah. I'll... I would expect to, not necessarily in the cinema. Yeah. The, the new trailer does look quite good, to be fair. I saw it on the big screen on Friday um, before going to see Bill and Ted 3, and it did look very good, but that's what trailers are supposed to do, I guess. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah. I, I just genuinely, I really want them to shake it up. I really do. Well, I would like to make Andy's dreams come true. So I would suggest casting myself as the next James Bond in order to completely kill the franchise. <laughs> I like it. An overweight Yorkshireman with a dodgy knee. I'd probably <laughs> die in the first five minutes. It's what the audience would have wanted. <laughs> There'd be some incredibly awkward sex scenes with more apologies than is normal in a Bond film. <laughs> Here is my prediction for No Time to Die. As, as we've seen in the trailer, Anna de Armas is mm. in the film, as mm. is Daniel Craig. It is going to be revealed that the identity of James Bond was all an elaborate bluff by Benoit Blanc, <laughs> and he and Marta have been solving international crimes together, and it's a stealth sequel to Knives Out. Ah. Definitely not watching it now. So I think what the conclusion of this is, is that Eon give us all jobs. Yes. Mm-hmm. I think the conclusion is none of you actually like Bond films, which is why you want them to radically change so they're not the same as they were. Possibly. I do like Bond films. I've watched most of them, if not all of them, and I've enjoyed most of them, if not all of them. No, not all of them. Die another day. But understandably. uh, I'm just tired. It did look like a good trailer, but it just looked like I've seen that. I've seen that before. Why are they doing that again? Because you went to see it every time. That's why. That's why they're making more. They are a clever bunch, aren't they? <laughs> I want them to be Bond films again. I want them to be Bond films with silliness and gadgets and fun. Make, remake Moonraker with a modern, modern budget. Yeah, Just that's why I think different. Davy Diggs would be perfect for that. No, Roger Moore still. Oh, Roger Moore. Oh, in his 80s, yeah. No, <laughs> from Beyond they, the Graves. Well, they'd have to oh, he's dead, isn't he? Days, wouldn't they? I totally yeah. forgot. Yeah, he did die oh, a couple of years ago. So, uh, rest in peace. <laughs> 
Oh, well, Sean Connery's still around. He could come out of retirement yeah. and they could make Never Say Never Again again. <laughs> Did you hear the joke about Sean Connery's brother's daughter? Oh, no. <laughs> Actually, it's a little niche. <laughs> It's time to do some recommendations. So um, these can be old, these can be new, um, but it's whatever we've been enjoying recently. So who would like to recommend something first? Dan has his hand up. Dan, by politeness, gets to go first. Uh, I was being very polite. That's because I actually am bending the rules and I've got two recommendations <gasps> this week. I'm sorry. Uh, but they're both they're both very valid. So the, the first one is actually something I've been listening to uh, it's an album I got last month called John Williams in Vienna. Earlier this year, John Williams, the legendary film composer, conducted the Vienna Philharmonic Orchestra, one of the greatest orchestras in the world. They've released it as a concert film and as an album, and it is just sublime. So is, is that all his greatest hits, but in waltz time? <laughs> it's his greatest hits but played in ways that make them sound fresh. Uh, like the quality of the musicians playing it and the way it's been recorded. Uh, things like the Imperial March from Star Wars, which Williams has later said is one of the best performances of it he's ever heard. You can he really hear the percussion coming through. And we've all heard that tune so many times that you forget it's supposed to be scary and it's supposed to terrify you. And this version of it you can feel the dread and the fear of if Vader came to come and kill you with his lightsaber, it would be scary. There are some lesser known Williams tracks in there as well. It opens up with The Flight to Neverland from Hook, which is a film I've seen loads, but I never really thought about the music. But it's a fantastic piece of music and, again, played brilliantly by the orchestra. All of the great themes are in there. There's stuff from Jaws, from E.T., the main Star Wars theme in there, which it only ever takes a note of that track for me to go, <gasps> Star Wars, and get really excited. The highlight on it for me is the theme from Jurassic Park. The way that's played is so beautiful. Every time I've listened to it, my bottom lip just starts quivering and I get the goosebumps all over. I recommend finding your best headphones or your best sound system, putting it on loud and just spend an hour in the presence of some of the best film music. Uh, the Standard newspaper said at the time that Williams was hailed by a standing, cheering ovation like God himself received by earthly disciples. So where, where was this orchestra? It was in Vienna. Where? Oh, I see. It means nothing to me. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so that's recommendation one. My second one is a book. Um, it's a new novel by Stuart Turton called The Devil and the Dark Water. And how would you obtain this book, Dan? Ah, well, we were very lucky to have received a copy of it from Bloomsbury Raven Publishers to uh, have a little read of as it came out Ooh. to let our listeners know whether it's any good. And happily, it really is. So are you going to give a positive review to this book that you've got for free? <laughs> <laughs> I am indeed, but uh, I would have done had I paid for the hardback or even for the ebook. Because you've read the first one, haven't you? I've read his first book, which is called The Seven Deaths of Evelyn Hardcastle, which is 
a brilliant mix of a time loop with a bit of Black Mirror, crossed with a little bit of Westworld, with hints of Downton Abbey, all mixed together into something you just wouldn't expect. And this one does something very similar. So it gets all these styles and influences of a Sherlock Holmes-style detective mystery, but set on board a ship, but it's in the 1600s, and there's also supernatural elements to it. So in amongst all the mysteries and murders that are going on, there could well be a demon at work, and the characters have got to figure out whether somebody's faking all this, whether the demon is real. There's no help coming because they're on a ship, they're in the middle of the ocean, and unless they figure it out, everybody dies. It twists and turns in all sorts of ways you don't expect. All the characters have got secrets and different motivations, mysteries upon mysteries. It keeps you reading, keeps you hooked, and happily, it all fits together in a nice, satisfying ending. Oh, that's good. Mm. Yeah, so great read. Uh, I powered through the book. Once you start getting into the mists of the plot, it really keeps you reading and reading because you just want to find out what happens next. And for a novel, that's all you can hope for. Mm, sounds good. It is good. Yeah, sounds great. Is it likely to become a film series, do you think? Because Bloomsbury, obviously... I can see this as a film, and I think it would work really well. Uh, you've got great women characters in there. You've got the setting of the ship. And other than the Pirates of the Caribbean films, there hasn't been a really good film set on a ship since probably Master and Commander. And that was nearly 20 years ago. I so, well, hope not, because I went to see Master and Commander for my 18th birthday. <laughs> <laughs> oh, um, yeah this is more action-packed than that i can safely say i think it would do really well actually there is a lot of necessary exposition in it just to fill in on backstories and context and that kind of thing that were it to be transplanted directly into a film might seem a little bit clunky it works when it's the detective on the page explaining things but if you put that in monologuing form it doesn't always work that might be the pitfall of an adaptation, but I would watch it. Uh, so how many mysteries upon mysteries upon mysteries out of 10 mysteries would you give it? I would give it eight mysteries upon mysteries upon mysteries. It's out on the 1st of October, uh, mm -hmm. which is a little while after this episode airs. Mm -hmm. So uh, once it's available in the bookshops, if you're allowed in bookshops in your part of the world, get it ordered and get it read. It's a good book. Mm-hmm. Thank you, Bloomsbury. And to any other publishers out there, um, send us free stuff. Woo! Absolutely, yes. Uh, add, add to the Nerdfest bookshelf. I also loved your first recommendation. Um, uh, a John Williams concert was the last concert that Andy and I went to see before lockdown. It was in Sunderland, but um, we're not holding that against it. It was wonderful. It just the, the first few bars just go, oh my God, it's Jurassic Park. Or, oh my God, it's yours. It's, yeah, it was, it was just, just, just wonderful. So do, do check that album out. I think I'm going to nominate the next recommendation because I know what it is and it will follow very nicely on. Andy? I don't see how it follows, but okay. Uh, <laughs> I was actually struggling a little for a recommendation. Uh, most of what I've been watching lately uh, is either being recommended by someone on this episode or has been discussed in recent episodes or has been discussed back in the mists of time. So my first instinct was I'm left with having to recommend uh, the Indian Premier League cricket, which has just started recently. Go Chennai Super Kings. <laughs> but I'm not sure that is the nerdiest of subjects. So I'm just going to recommend something very, very old. 
I've created a list of classic films that I've never seen, and I'm setting about watching them all. Uh, so I've gone through a bunch of Hitchcock movies, I've watched Nosferatu, The Man Who Laughs, a couple of others. And today I want to recommend the film that Hazel and I watched last night, which is Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid. <laughs> oh, great film. I justify this by saying it's currently available now on Sky slash Now TV, and it's bloody good, and it should be watched. So, the film was released in 1969, which is a large number of years ago. Uh, Paul Newman and Robert Redford star as Butch and Sundance, respectively. They are the leaders of the Hole in the Wall Gang, which is a group of outlaw thieves, and it's set in early 1900s uh, American West. After a train heist goes wrong, they find themselves on the run from a relentless posse, and in their desperation decide to escape to Bolivia. Uh, It's a really straightforward story. It's driven by characters, and both Newman and Redford are excellent. So Butch Cassidy is the brains of the operation. He's a charming, charismatic ideas man. Uh, who almost seems to view his chosen profession as a spot of casual fun. He's got a kind of easygoing swagger that's completely likeable rather than arrogant. And despite an affinity for dynamite, he's an unthreatening character who prefers not to hurt anybody, and you're on his side from the second he appears on screen. Uh, The Sundance Kid, by contrast, is a bit more of the classical tough guy cowboy character, and he provides the brawn. He's an expert gunslinger, and he seems more capable and practically knowledgeable of the two. But he's a very well-rounded character. He's more realistic than your stereotypical Western hero. And once they get into trouble and are unable to escape, his concern grows into anxiety, then fear, panic, and desperation. Ultimately, the film is about the relationship between these two men and how it is changed by the adversity that they face. I haven't seen many Westerns, and I have this idea in my head that they're usually just... Overly macho bullet fests designed only to display grim tough guys racking up a body count. And that's probably completely unfair. Butch Cassidy and Sundance Kid does have quite a lot of shooting, but it doesn't feel particularly gratuitous because you really like and care about the people involved. It's got a sense of fun as well, so it's got a couple of good comedic beats and there's great camaraderie between the leads. It does a fantastic job of introducing the main characters and making you care about them. Uh, There were moments and sequences that I recognised from pop culture over the years. And it's great to finally see them in the proper context. I'm motivated now to hunt down other films starring Newman and Redford. So I think maybe either Cool Hand Luke or All the President's Men may be next on the watch list. What was the weather like when you watched it, Andy? It was dark <laughs> outside. That's not weather, I realised. I I'm think it you up was. Here. Oh. Raindrops keep falling on your head. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> I remember that from The Simpsons, and when I saw it, I thought, oh, that makes sense. The uh, the link between the two leads is obviously a big thing, but I think the script is also one of the main features of it. Uh, it's a William Goldman script, yeah. the guy who wrote Princess Bride, the guy who adapted Misery. I think he maybe also did All the President's Men. Is that right, John? He did, yes, yeah. He wrote possibly one of the best books on Hollywood. Um, Adventures in the Screen Trade. Probably one of the best classic Hollywood books and has a really, really good chapter on um, Butch Cassidy. Yeah, I'd recommend that book to anyone interested in sort of screenwriting. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so our list of um, classic films that we haven't seen but definitely want to has grown recently um, due to a recommendation from Ian McLaughlin, who hopefully will come back onto the podcast to do a full recommendation of this. Um, But it's a documentary series called The Movies, and it's on Sky at the moment. And it's everything from the 1930s. uh, Sorry, I think it was the 1930s it started. It started with talkies, so 28 or so. 
um, right up until the present day. And the, there's basically two episodes, each 45 minutes on each decade. And it just takes you through the most important and epic films from that time period. And it is just a nostalgia fest and it's amazing. And it's produced by Tom Hanks and everything that he does is amazing. So um, do check that out. But I won't say anything more because I think Ian's going to do a full recommendation of it soon. So who did you prefer, Andy, Butch or Sundance? I think Butch Cassidy. Uh, he just seemed like a really, really nice guy who you'd get along with and he'd make you smile and laugh while he was robbing you. Whereas Sundance was just a little bit more prone to shooting your belt off and then shooting your gun across the room. It just seemed a little bit of a raggy bastard, really. <laughs> what did you make of the ending? I really liked the ending. That was one of the moments that I'd been aware of from uh, parodies or greatest movie moments or so on. But I think it works really well. Um, mm -hmm. I'm generally a proponent of uh, movies implying things without actually showing them. It usually is uh, more powerful than you're seeing exactly in gory detail. And uh, I think it worked brilliantly. Love the end. It had a touch of the Thelma and Louise's about it, where they just look at each other and they just, they kind of know, but also they they have this feeling that they're going to stay together. Robert Redford is um, a nice man by all accounts and um, obviously named his um, film festival that supports independent filmmaking, uh, Sundance. And well, he does work for Hydra. Oh, that, of course, yeah, I forgot about that. So how many raindrops out of 10 would you like to <laughs> fall on your head? Um, I think uh, eight raindrops out of 10, though I'm thinking about nine. Eight and a half. Is that allowed? Eight big raindrops and a bit of drizzle. <laughs> yeah. So my recommendation this week is something that I think this may be a verity. I believe we've all seen this. It is the latest Bill and Ted film, Bill and Ted Face the Music. Yes. Yeah. yeah. Coming some 30 years after the original, uh, we've got the original screenwriters. Uh, we're a new director who is... Dean Pariseau. Who was responsible for Galaxy Quest. Um, who have come together to catch us up on what Bill and Ted are up to in middle age. So in one of the most egregious pieces of hand-waving I've ever seen at the start of the film, it turns out that a kiss cover of a 1970s Argent song was not the song that would save the universe. <laughs> it was, in fact, just a nice song they sung at the end of the film. Bill and Ted have spent the last 30 years trying to write the song that will save the world to increasingly diminishing returns. Their music has got more experimental and their audience, as Spinal Tap put it, has become more selective to the extent that we open on them playing a, a relative's wedding. <laughs> Meanwhile, their marriages to the princesses are in a little bit of trouble. Both have a teenage daughter, Billy and Thea, who look up to them. So life's, life's not too bad, but they still haven't written the song that will change the world. Suddenly, Rufus's daughter appears, tells them that they have 70 minutes to write the song or the world will be destroyed and the universe will collapse in on itself. That's what everyone needs, a deadline. Very much so, yeah. If someone had, on my um, last day of university, before I handed my decision in, told me I had 78 minutes to do a rewrite or the universe <laughs> would have been destroyed, we, we kind of then go on to dual narratives with Bill and Ted deciding the best thing to do is to steal the song from their future selves after they've already written it. Whilst their daughters decide to help their dads out by creating a supergroup. 
and it's just lovely. It's really, really nice. Yeah. It's a little shambolic around the edges. It's obviously not had the most money in the world spent on it, but I just had a big goofy grin on my face all the way through it. <laughs> yeah, I agree. Uh, it made me smile and it made me happy, which in 2020, if a film can just do that, it's great. Mm-hmm. One weekend at a time, we went film one, film two, and then followed it up with Face the Music. And it stands up to the other two as well. Uh, there's a big gap between mm-hmm. them, but it hits all the notes you want it to hit. And by the end, I was happy. It made me smile. Great. It just comes in, does the business and goes as well, which is nice. It doesn't overstate its welcome. It knows, it knows it's a bit of fluff. And I don't mean that in a bad way. Yeah. I, I mean, 90 minutes long. Brilliant. <laughs> comedy should all be 90 minutes long, I think. I think once you get over 90 minutes for a comedy, you're, you're you're stretching it a little bit. Um, Keanu Reeves is excellent. Alex Winter is excellent. Um, mm-hmm. Alex has had a very different career to Keanu Reeves. You can say. But a really successful career as a director and, and writer of some really, really good documentaries. And also, bizarrely, the director of the Germany Frosties adverts. Most of those were directed by Alex Winter, <laughs> which I did not realise until I did a bit of Google research. Bluff. <laughs> nope, surprisingly true. <laughs> Um, and they both reenact their teenage selves very well, but also a realization that they're older. So there's a little bit of bittersweet aging there. And, you know, they don't hide the fact that these are characters who are, are now in their 50s and perhaps suffering a little bit of a case of arrested development. For me, that was one of the weird things about it, though, that they were essentially trapped as their teenage selves. Obviously, Star Wars, having Luke aged and changed his attitude to life and things did not go down well so i can kind of understand why they didn't want to do that with these two but Mm. you could understand what their wives would be frustrated about shall we say (laughs) yeah but the thing about bill and ted is they're relentlessly enthusiastic Uh and they're they're always looking on the bright side and it's nice that even 30 years of failing to write the song that will save the universe they're still trying to do it they haven't given up (laughs) and uh i i do like that about them if anything, I think I went in with my expectations a little high. I just watched um, Bogus Journey about two weeks ago and thought that was great, really good. The first one, its biggest strength is the two characters and the film itself. Mm, but Bogus Journey, I think, really nails it and death you know, warms up the whole thing and makes it work really well. But then going to the third one, I, just because everyone told me how great it was, I was kind of expecting a little more than I got. I thought the best thing about it was probably the daughters. Mm. Yeah. And I almost at one point wanted to watch their story rather than everyone else's. Mm. Mm-hmm. One of my worries going into it from the trailer was how much Bill and Ted were we going to get. I had a slight worry that we, you know, might get Canaries turning up on set for a week and we were going to spend most of the film with the daughters. But I think it's fairly evenly split. I think that Bill and Ted are certainly the, certainly the leads. But the actors who play the daughters are great. Um, Samara Weaving, who was unrecognisable from Ready or Not, which was yep. the last thing that I saw her in. Um, didn't realise it was the same person at all. Mm, she's great. So the actor who plays the other daughter, Bridget Lundy-Payne, is absolutely amazing and atypical. They play the role really well, and if anyone hasn't seen that series, I highly recommend them to watch yeah. it. I was one of the ones who uh, watched the trailer and wasn't looking forward to it too much because the jokes in the trailer I didn't find too funny. And I am so pleased to say how wrong I was. I was laughing out loud. It was so, so funny throughout. And I just had the best time <laughs> in watching it. it was, I thought it was absolutely amazing. 
I thought the relationship between Bill and Ted and the daughters as well was a really nice relationship. Yeah. The daughters just yeah. loved the dads and it was just, yeah. there was none of that teenage angsty type thing you would get. I also loved how one of the plot points is for Bill and Ted to steal the song from um, themselves in the future. And they meet themselves in a few different scenarios. And sometimes they are, <laughs> they really don't like each other and they have like mm-hmm. a really big argument. And I just love that. It's like, God, that, that Ted is a dick. <laughs> I, just, I love how like, they didn't... <laughs> they thought that their future selves was maybe uh, not them in a, in a weird way, even though it was them. They was like, my God, you've become such a twat. <laughs> Keanu's English accent has not improved since Dracula, I noticed with some of the <laughs> future scenes. <laughs> yeah, it's a film that does not take itself very seriously at all. So I kind of like that the CGI in places was a little bit shabby because in a film that doesn't take itself very ser- seriously, it's kind of appropriate. Yeah, it was just, a, as, as Dan says, just the perfect antidote to 2020. <laughs> yeah, it was very lovely. Uh, the part where uh, the daughters went back in time to assemble uh, the greatest band ever really, really made me happy. Um, when they first showed up in the 60s to get the first person, I was concerned it was going to be someone that I didn't really rate. I thought, oh, don't, don't go get Mick Jagger. Don't don't pretend he knows what he's doing musically. <laughs> but they didn't. They got someone who would definitely be in my uh, greatest band of all time. So well done them. And it just got even better from there. There is a nice little cameo from a real life musician as well in the future that I enjoyed that I won't spoil. Yes, I like that very much. Um, the, the only thing that I really disliked in the film was the robot. I, I can't stand the style of humour that the, the robot character employed. I, knew you I hate that. <laughs> mm. It's the style of humour that is all over Thor Ragnarok and it's all subversive. Therefore, and it's you all... don't have a valid opinion. <laughs> <laughs> but this, this thing where it, it wasn't really a character, it was a guy in a costume trying to say awkward stuff mm-hmm. to create a juxtaposition the between point. the expectation of a it killer. It was a robot yes, that became but... human-ish. The robot felt like it was intentionally trying to be from our universe, not from the universe of the film for the sake of attempted humour, and it, it yeah. just stuck out as not a real character, and it, I really, really hate it. The robot was my least favourite thing in the movie too, but I feel like defending it just because of the, the Thor Ragnarok reference. <laughs> <laughs> I wonder what happened to the uh, the good robot Bill and Ted's from the end of Bogus Journey, because <laughs> they were built by stations, so they wouldn't they would have been long-lasting. Mm. What happened to them over the past 30 years? Where are the good roboticers? They made all the terrible Keanu Reeves films. Because <laughs> oh. Keanu Reeves has been in a lot of films over the last eight years, about half of which are a load of shit. Right, so it was a robot. <laughs> Johnny Mnemonic, no, I can't be asked doing that. I'll send Robot Bill. No, that was Evil Bill. Right. <laughs> Ted. Or Ted, even. Keanu Reeves evil is Ted. Ted. Thank you. Oh, do you want to do that gag again with the right person? <laughs> so like, if he looks at like, the script for Johnny Mnemonic, goes, oh, fuck that, but it's like $10 million. I'll just send Robot Bill. Ted! Ted. Robot Ted. I'll just send Robot Ted. <laughs> <laughs> and that explains it explains the day the earth stood still it explains that fucking house that's made out of glass that somehow has an attic anyone know what I'm talking about there I didn't dream that film did I is that the lake house with Sandra Bullock it's a ridiculous film and it was made by robot Ted <laughs> I was going to put one, one more little tiny point in that the name of my sex tape the, the, <laughs> <laughs> the soundtrack's not amazing there's no there's no kiss there there's no God gave a convulsive two in there which was a bit of a shame. That's a positive because Kiss suck. <laughs> but that's a, that's a song. It's a song, I'll admit that much. 
Factually correct. (laughs) (laughs) So, John, how many sequels out of ten does it deserve? Well, that must suggest that I want more sequels. John, John, how how many how many outstanding guitar riffs out of ten would you give it? Now this is going to be controversial. I'm going to give it nine because I just really, really enjoyed it. Excellent. <laughs> I'm on board with that. I would be right with you. Okay, Peter, what's your recommendation? Well, this month I've been enjoying Raised by Wolves, not to be confused with the sitcom based on Caitlin Moran's childhood. It's a totally different animal. It's a dark sci-fi fairy tale produced and directed, at least for the first two episodes, by Ridley Scott. The first time he's directed a show himself for TV. It's set on a remote but habitable planet where two competing teams of colonists arrive to seek refuge after their native Earths destroyed by a great war. First to land are a pair of androids called Mother, played by Amanda Collin, and Father, as they could travel faster through space without the physical limitations of the human body. They bring the embryos of six human children with them to be born and raised on the new planet, but after the first 12 years, all of them die, apart from one, who they raise as their son. Everything changes when the second team arrives. They're religious zealots who worship the ancient god Mithras, bringing an ark ship packed with families, and we see what happens when the colonists collide with disastrous consequences and why you don't mess with a mother, even if they're an android. As you'd expect from Ridley Scott, it has some great bits of visual design, and it's shot and lit very cinematically, although it's on a TV budget. They make great use of their location, which is Cape Town in South Africa. So far it feels a little like The Martian, and a little like Ex Machina. I've only seen the first two episodes, I'm finding it very different to the other shows I'm watching, and I'm keen to see the rest. It's 10 episodes long, each around 50 minutes, and it's currently being released weekly on HBO Max in the US, so we should expect to see it here fairly soon on Sky Atlantic or Now TV. And it's already been renewed for a second season. Has anyone seen any of it? No, but I'm intrigued. No. What kind of tone does it have? Is it very serious? Has it got some lighter moments? Is it heavy sci-fi? I mean, it's enjoyable, but it's, mm. you know, it's, it's not going for the gag. Yeah, but it doesn't take itself too seriously. I mean, it, it's not dull. Mm. <laughs> That's what you mean. Yeah. <laughs> Sounds good. Like Blade Runner. Are you accusing Blade Runner of being dull? Uh, yes, I am. Now, question. <gasps> oh, there's a dirt court. I think my, um, my internet's gone again because I cut the word not <laughs> out of um, the sentence Blade Runner is, is dull. That's Does anyone watch the trailer? Nope. The trailer that no. you sent us to watch yesterday? No. <laughs> Yeah, the trailer that he said, please make sure you watch this before the podcast. Nope. That one, no. The one bit of homework for two minutes that I gave you all. <laughs> nope. <laughs> I was busy reading a book for homework. <laughs> I was busy taking my dog to the vets. I was... Uh... Would you have wanted me to let my dog sit there <laughs> yelping with a possibly broken back leg in a serious amount of pain, going, let's take her to the emergency vets. No, let's watch a trailer that Peter recommended that, by the sounds of the title, has a dog in it that will only upset her further. <laughs> so how do they do the androids, Peter? Are they, like, Data style or Battlestar Galactica style? Yeah, Data style. It's two actors walking around in silver suits. Cool. She's good, and well, they're both they're both good. Is there much action in it? Does it have lots of lasers that go pew 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 and spaceships and and all sorts? 
Uh, yes, it's not. It's not about space combat, but there is a there is a battle in it. I was going to pull you up and correct you on Ridley Scott not having directed for TV before, because uh-huh. I was convinced that Ridley Scott directed some episodes of the Hunger TV show, but no, he Google just tells me that was Tony Scott directed a couple of episodes. His brother, yeah, yeah, that was a terrible show. Softcore erotic vampire porn with David Bowie introducing each episode. But that sounds ideal for you. <laughs> it did, yeah. <laughs> Is that why you were disappointed? Oh, what's going on here? It's a weird world who gets his cock out. Ooh, what's going on? <laughs> You're just making me want to see it now. <laughs> so, uh, Peter, how how many embryos out of ten? Uh, I, I think I'd give it eight so far. Uh, mm-hmm. We'll see how it goes when we hit the episodes that aren't directed by Ridley. Cool. Uh, mm. Do we know who any of the other directors are? Um, is it a Mandalorian-style name directors? I didn't recognise the names. No. It's a lot of TV at the moment where you get a big name director to do the first couple of So David Fincher did Zodiac. Scorsese did a couple. He did Boardwalk. And he also did Vinyl, which was less successful. But I guess if you do the pilot, you establish the visual tone for the show and the characterizations yep. and everything. Uh, David Fincher... Are you thinking of House of Cards? Mindhunter. No, David Fincher did um, Mindhunter. Sorry, what did I say? Zodiac, because that's a film. <laughs> yeah. Yes, so so David Fincher did House of Cards, but David Fincher also did Mindhunter, which mm-hmm. is essentially Zodiac, the TV series. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Isn't Jonathan Groff on Mindhunter? Yes, he is. Yes, so I only knew Jonathan Groff on Mindhunter, because yeah. I'd never seen Glee and I'd never seen Frozen. Or Hamilton. Mm. So I'm watching Hamilton and Jonathan Groff is coming on as this very kind of camp fair George the Third, yeah. and I know him as, you know, the very very gruff, straight talking, um, serial killer hunter. And it turns out that what I was watching was the oddity in his canon, yeah. rather than the other <laughs> way around. Yeah, yeah. Because I did think of Jonathan Groff for a Bond, like a gay James Bond, but that just to play. I'd go for a gay Bond. <laughs> yeah. Were you just thinking of Hamilton cast members for Bond Hazel? <laughs> yeah, yeah, Leslie Odin, Odin Jr. would be awesome as well. <laughs> mm, yeah. Shall I do my recommendation? Mm-hmm. Um, before your recommendation, mm-hmm. Hazel, can we have an update on a previous recommendation? Because is it fair to say your thoughts on Lukecock Country have <laughs> changed somewhat? Um, yeah, I'm not watching a single minute more of that. Thank you very much. <laughs> <laughs> How far did you get? Um, I watched five episodes and... Something happened in the fifth episode, um, and I was just like, nope, there's just no need, and no, 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 no. Yeah, I think it went beyond horror and became nastiness and gratuitous imagery. Uh, Yeah, I mean, it was a little bit sporadic anyway, in that I loved the first episode. Obviously, we all felt pretty similarly about the second one. Third one went up, fourth one went down. It kind of all was coming down to the fifth episode, but... Honestly, there is just no need for that. So I'm not going to put myself through it anymore. I'll stick with it, I think. So uh, the show I'd like to recommend is a new show on Netflix, and it's called The Duchess. And it is produced by comedian Catherine Ryan, who also stars in it. And it's a semi-autobiographical show in that she plays an exaggerated version of herself, or I guess like how people might imagine her to be in real life, having seen her shows. You could say a, a less likable version of herself. Yeah. 
in the first episode, certainly. Yeah. Um, so her character is called Catherine, and uh, she is a single mother of a nine-year-old daughter called Olive. And Olive's father is a guy called Shep, and he's played by uh, Rory Keenan. And he was in an Irish boy band back in the day, apparently the last one to stand up from the stool. Mm. Um, and Olive was conceived in an alleyway behind the venue of one of his concerts. And uh, Shep is now living on a canal boat on the Thames and is a bit of a mess um, and is quite angry at the world. But he's absolutely hilarious as well. Um, He also hates Catherine and vice versa. So the two have to put on a bit of a show of unity when they're in front of Olive. Catherine owns and runs her own business with her friend Bev. Um, They make... Well, how would I describe this? Provocative pottery, I'm going to go with. Um, and, uh, you know, her character is very independent, gives zero fucks about what anyone else thinks. Um, and that's sort of exemplified by arguments that she gets into with other parents at her daughter's school gates. She has a semi-serious boyfriend called Evan, um, played by, and I'm going to get this name wrong, I think it's something like Steen Raskopoulos. That sounds about right. He's an improviser on Whose Line Is It Anyway Australia, um, and he's in an improvising duo called The Bear Pack. In the show, he plays seemingly the perfect man, but he is kept at arm's length by Catherine. Um, So, like, they've been together for a couple of years. She's only just allowing him to stay over, but he has to stay in Olive's room, which is fine because that's, like, Olive and Catherine sleep in the same bed each night. Catherine does seem to like him, but it's very clear that she can take him or leave him. Uh, and you know, she likes him, but she definitely doesn't need him. So the first episode, it's Olive's birthday and Catherine's present to her is a trip to the fertility clinic. Because what Olive wants more than anything is a baby sister or brother. So Catherine is there with her daughter asking the doctor about the process of IVF and sperm donors. Well, <laughs> Olive is listening in. Um... It's not going to be a show for everybody. I think, um, you know, as you were saying, Peter, her character is definitely flawed. And sometimes I think the show struggles to find the balance between her character being mean and funny and just plain mean. Yeah. But there are moments of genuine feelings between some of the characters. Um, She really loves her daughter and she likes her as well. And there are some really, really, really funny moments. Um, uh, Catherine herself is very funny. Shep is brilliant. And I think it's great that Catherine, uh, the character, is sort of showing who she is, flaws and all. And she's a woman who, she knows what she wants. She doesn't question herself in the process. And she's very relatable in that way, particularly because she's playing someone um, very similar age to me. You know, as I get older, more deeply into my 30s, I'm far less apologetic about who I am. And I'm not like Catherine, which is probably a good thing, but I'm not like anyone else either. And I, So I, I really felt a very strong connection in, in that sense. You know, just be who you are. Um, Everyone else is taken, as Oscar Wilde said. So I definitely recommend it, but um, probably only if you've seen some of Catherine Ryan's stand-up and you like that, because if you don't like her stand-up, you definitely won't like The Duchess. But yeah, it's a limited series. I think it's about six episodes on Netflix. We watched them all in less than 24 hours because we genuinely did like it and we wanted to see what happened next. How many actual duchesses are in it? (laughs) Um... If, it, if it's less than four, I'm out. Mm. Well, Sarah Ferguson will do anything for tennis, so she's probably in there somewhere. <laughs> that hasn't been proven. <laughs> yeah, she might have been in the canal boat. Allegedly. Yeah. yeah. 
having once been stood behind the Duchess of York in an airport in Las Vegas, I think she uh, has an inflated sense of it. Sense of entitlement, yeah. Well, well, literally, she is entitled. <laughs> yeah. She yes. has a title, she is a duchess. <laughs> <laughs> I saw 15 minutes of this. Mm-hmm. Louise was watching it and I just wandered into the living room as an Irish woman was shouting, um, OK, I'm coming in my hands. So that was my introduction <laughs> to it. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I was like, open the door, like, I really hope the TV's on, or <laughs> there's going to be some explaining to do. <laughs> and I, I sat and watched the rest of the episode, and I'm not a massive fan of her, but I thought it was really mm-hmm. good. I really enjoyed the, the, the chunk of it that I saw, and I'm going to go back and watch the rest of it. Sounds of it like you came in, um, pun in, not intended, about halfway through the series there so you'll have missed some quite key moments so do do go back and yeah. and especially if you if you think you've enjoyed it i got the gist of what was going yeah. on i think, I think yeah. yeah got the gist of what oh. was going on <laughs> oh god um but yeah that's interesting that you don't particularly care for her stand-up but you quite like this how she met her husband is quite interesting isn't it in real life remind me of that she's married to her childhood sweetheart so they dated that's when right. they were teenagers when she was a teenager, she dated this guy for a while and then they split up and she thought nothing more of it. And then years and years later, she was filming Who Do You Think You Are for the BBC and had to go back to Canada to meet relatives for the show and just bumped into this guy who she mm. dated when she was a teenager. Yeah. And they are now married. I do remember that. Oh. I remember her t- telling the story, I think it was on Jonathan Ross, about how she was quite mm-hmm. shocked that he recognised her seeing as though she's got a new face now. <laughs> <laughs> yeah mm. it's a bit flea baggy would it be fair to say yeah she doesn't um she doesn't go fourth wall or anything she doesn't tell us how she's actually feeling um and she doesn't kind of explain any context but i'd say some of the shock humor is quite similar so how many um young men waiting to donate their sperm in the waiting room <laughs> <laughs> would you give it out of 10 how many handfuls have come out of 10 <laughs> i I would give it um, seven and a half handfuls of cum out of ten. <laughs> That's a lot. It's a lot. It's yeah. What, what are you doing with the half? Is it just in one hand or? Where did the other half go? Oh, um, half of it dropped on the ground, unfortunately. Oh. <laughs> Such a waste. It's, it's messy. What can I say? We would like to apologise to the Catholics in the audience for the wasted half hand of jizz. <laughs> and that brings us to the end of another episode of nerdfest thank you so 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 much for listening we'll be back in a couple of weeks time with some more quizzes um do check us out on social media we're at nerdfest uk on twitter and facebook do send us in any questions that you want us to tackle as well and if you also have the time and inclination it would be absolutely marvellous if you could leave us a review wherever you listen to your podcast. And as always, there is a very, very special reward for anyone who does that, courtesy of John. I will write a song that will change your world. <laughs> <laughs> Until next time, you've been listening to... A man who could probably solve a mystery on a ship in the 1600s. A man who is not afraid to tell everyone that Blade Runner is a boring, boring film. Boo! <laughs> oh. <laughs> An android who wants you to call him Danny. (laughs) (laughs) Half a handful at best. (laughs) (laughs) 
Oh, God. And a woman who is very much looking forward to all the James Bond fanboys DMing her on Twitter and telling her what a good idea it is for a woman to be James Bond. <laughs> we'll see you next time. Bye-bye. Bye. Bye. Did I shoot... What? No, did Peter shoot James Bond's wife because he was jealous because he said he got upset that James Bond got married? <laughs> no, because I was in the cinema and it was on the screen, John. <laughs> That's how cinema works. You mean those big pictures aren't real? <laughs> <laughs> Only in IMAX. That's why you pay extra for IMAX. They do it for real in IMAX. Ah, yeah. I see. That explains why they never answer my numerous questions I ask of them during the film. <laughs> <laughs> Which is also why I get thrown out. <laughs> yeah.